You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu slash Ellison Center. So welcome, everybody. Uh, thank you very much for coming. We're going to get an on, on time, more or less, start. Uh, my name is Phil Lyon. I'm the managing director of the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian <laughs> Studies here at the University of Washington, almost exactly below you where you are sitting. Um, and we are a uh, center based at the University of Washington, an endowed center, uh, which promotes the study of Russia, Eastern Europe, and Central Asia um, across multiple disciplines. Um, including history, political science, literature, um, sometimes even uh, linguistics. Um, today, uh, we are really w- very pleased to welcome um, Mr. Dennis Dilettant. Um, and um, I want to talk a little, little bit about 1989 before we start. Um, this is a, a, a year that has great importance for me personally. Um, it's the year that I, I discovered Eastern Europe um, in, uh, in it from, as, from the perspective of a, of a young freshman in college. Um, I'd gone out to the Midwest to uh, go to college, and suddenly I found myself glued to the New York Times, to the Des Moines uh, Tribune, uh, to uh, the local news, anything I could get my hands on to watch these incredible events that were unfolding um, in Eastern Europe. Absolutely mind-boggling. For people who'd grown up in the, in the Cold War, it was simply impossible to believe that these things were actually happening. Um, so this is a year that has a lot of uh, meaning for me, and one thing that we're very proud of to be able to do um, in the Ellison Center is promote a series of talks um, on this year, looking at different countries and how they experienced the transformations of 1989, sometimes very peacefully, um, as in the example of the Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia, and sometimes uh, less peacefully, as we're going <laughs> to hear about today. Um, so uh, I've, we've handed out a, a list which has a number of our upcoming events as part of this 1989 series that we're going to be launching. Um, this is the first one, so we're happy to start off uh, with a bang, as it were. Um, but then we will be uh, doing a talk on the politics of memory um, 30 years after the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, a, book on, uh, a book talk on coming out of communism, the emergence of um, LGBT activism in Eastern Europe. And then we actually have a talk going into um, January, um, which will be given by Professor Filak here in the corner, um, which will be on uh, the events of 1989 in uh, Poland and in Czechoslovakia and Hungary as well and Hungary as well so um, please uh, look at our look to our website for more information about those events they're going to be really exciting um, with some really dynamic speakers Um, it's an incredibly important anniversary and we're very very pleased uh, to be able to meet with you and discuss these uh, exciting events Um, with that I'm going to hand over to um, our representatives from ARCS um, and the Greater Romanian community um, who will discuss uh, the upcoming film festival and um, then Ileana will uh, introduce our speaker so thank you very much for coming so hi, I'm Otilia Baraboy. I'm with Ileana, co-founder of American Romanian Culture Society. Um, the Dennis's uh, visit and lecture is part of the pre-event of the Romanian Film Festival that um, will take place at SIF Cinema Uptown between November 15 and 17. So I hope you can make it also because the, the theme is uh, 30 years since the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, we wanted to give you a, to give a context 
uh, to this event by inviting um, uh, Dennis here, and thank you, Rikas, for organizing with us this uh, very important event. Um, and also, we invited other countries from Eastern Europe to participate with films, so we, ha we don't have films only from Romania, we have films from Ukraine, from um, the Republic of Moldova, and from Bulgaria. So I hope you can come and um, put together the puzzle of uh, uh, this very important event 30 years ago that affected us all and still affects uh, at least parts of Europe. Thank you. Yeah, so um, it's truly an honor to introduce Professor Denis Delatand and also a very good friend, close friend to uh, the Romanian uh, community. And I will say a couple of words because otherwise um, his uh, list of publication is just overwhelming. <laughs> Only to read it through probably will take me an hour. So Denis um, Delatant is currently visiting Gion Ratsu, Professor of Romanian Studies at uh, Georgetown University and Emeritus Professor of Romanian Studies at the School of Slavonic and East European Studies, University College in London. He was a Professor of Romanian Studies at the University of Amsterdam between 2003-2010. Uh, and he was also appointed to the board of the British government's know-how fund for Central and Eastern Europe in 1990 and was actively uh, involved in its work in Romania and in the Republic of Moldova until 1999. For his service, he was made an officer of the order of the British Empire in 95, and of course in 2000, the Romanian president at the time, Emil Constantinescu, awarded him Ordinul Pentrumeri, the merit uh, rank of commander for services to Romanian democracy. Between 2000 and 2001, he was a Rosenzweig Family Fellow at the Center for Advanced Holocaust Studies at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in DC. Dennis Delatant has contributed seminal studies of, on 20th century Romanian history and politics, 1940s labor camp in Transnistria, for example, or the uh, Bessarabia question, the Soviet influence on Romanian communism, language policies in Soviet Moldova, as well as the place of Romania in Eastern Europe today. I will mention only three of his books um, that for me stood up um, among uh, the wonderful collection of his writings. His books, Ceausescu and the Securitate, The Secret Police, Coercion and Dissent in Romania between 1965-1989, covering mostly the Ceausescu period, Communist Era in Romania, Gheorghe Gheorghiu Desh and the Police State, 1948-1965. So you see he has covered the entire communist uh, era in Romania. Hitler's uh, forgotten ally, Ion Antonescu and his regime, going back 1940-1944, a book published in 2006. And British clandestine activities in Romania during the Second World War, uh, published in uh, 2016. About this book, one of the uh, younger scholars, uh, Romanian uh, historian, Stefan Ionescu, said that um, his book fits very well in the latest scholarly trend of books depicting the activity of foreign intelligence services in Romania during uh, 1930s and 1940s, including Vadim Guzum, uh, Soviet espionage in Romania, documents between 1924-1944, uh, 
and uh, Sorina Paraschivei, uh, American espionage in Romania, uh, in Romania 1944-1948. Um, Ionescu draws attention to the fact uh, that Denis uh, Deletan's book influenced heavily Romanian historiography. Um, Romanian contemporary historians cannot write about Second World War in Romania, espionage or communist Romania without quoting uh, Denis Deleton. Deleton skillfully depicts, says Ionescu, um, the complicated geopolitical relations in East Central Europe during Second World War and the ways in which uh, Nazi Germany try to exploit the tensions between Romania, Hungary, and USSR in order to pursue its military and economic interests, especially in connection to oil production in the case of Romania. Things that are not that obvious when you read some other um, uh, historians' accounts about uh, Romania and its place on the map during the Second World War. Um, his most recent book that was just published at the beginning of this year, Romania under Communism, Paradox and Degeneration, is, I would say, a synthesis of his scholarship, a culmination of his research, in perfect coherence with his argument about Romania's exceptional place among the countries of the former communist bloc and the unexpected course of events in the aftermath of the 1989 revolution. And today's talk, uh, will focus precisely on the Romanian uh, revolution um, and will provide his unique experience um, from the point of view of a BBC a journalist. So join me in welcoming Dennis Dalton. Thank you, uh, Eliana, for that uh, laudatory introduction. I want to employ you as my impresario. Oh, good. <laughs> Um, I'd like to thank you, of course, and Ottilia, and also the Centre for extending the invitation to come and talk to you this afternoon. Um, I would like also to acknowledge the presence of Ambassador Mark Gittenstein, who's a former US ambassador to Romania, and also my very old friend, Jim Ogero, sitting here, whom I think I first met in Cluj in 1970, when he was a Fulbright lecturer. I'm going to, my talk today is in two parts. The first is really a slideshow to give you some context for the revolution, although I'm sure many of you are familiar with that. And then secondly, I will talk directly to my experience with the BBC, working for the BBC um, after uh, the outbreak of the revolution, effectively in Timisoara in the 16th, uh, on the 16th of December. So we'll just run through a few slides as background. Again, feel free to ask any questions um, after the slideshow or indeed after the talk about uh, the presentation that I'm giving you. So, Ileana, if you'd like to start off, just a few slides about the background then to the revolution. Um, the map, so we'll be talking principally about events over here in Timisoara, but also I'll show you some photographs of the repression, the victims of repression in Cluj here in Transylvania. Um, but the focus of the talk will be on events in Bucharest, especially December the 21st, December the 22nd, and the aftermath of uh, 22nd of December 1989. So, next one. So, what was the prelude, we can say? Failure in the economic field, first of all, which had really lowered substantially the standard of living for Romania. If you think that uh, in beginning in 1983, rationing of bread 
of fuel, of uh, other basic foodstuffs, cheese and eggs, was commonplace in Romania, both in the cities but also in rural areas. And this led to the development uh, very much of a system of barter, especially as uh, younger people have moved to the town to work and they rely, began to rely very much on supplies of food from their parents who may have remained in the countryside in the village. Also, another major factor in the change of Ceausescu's um, <clears throat> stance, or the, the way in which he was seen, was the emergence of Mikhail Gorbachev in, uh, as the head of the Soviet Communist Party in March 1985. Up to that date, we might say that Ceausescu could have presented himself as one of the younger figures in the communist movement in the East Central European bloc. Uh, so in the late 60s, early 70s, Ceausescu as a young man often compared with the aging Brezhnev. Now with Gorbachev the positions are reversed. So Gorbachev is the young Soviet reformist, Ceausescu is the rather conservative or very conservative communist. Nature against the regime. There was a severe earthquake in 1977 and then floods in 1980-81 which severely weakened the output of agriculture in Romania plus the fact that Romania was exporting huge amounts of meat, for example, to the Soviet Union in the early 80s, which occasioned rationing of meat in Romania. Foreign debt rises to this considerable sum. Ceausescu introduces a draconian austerity plan, and this leads to widespread discontent in Romania. Next one. A speech given not long before Ceausescu's flight uh, in December the 22nd when he fled. This was a speech in November <coughs> 1989, as you can see there from the caption. Next one. So Timisoara, um, how did the protests emerge in Timisoara? Well, they came about from um, a really a combination of factors. The major one being that Romanians and Hungarians joined together really to defend the uh, proposed uh, deportation or eviction of the Hungarian Reformed Church Pastor Laszlo Turkish in Timisoara. This led to major protests which were continued by workers from several of the major industrial enterprises in Timisoara. Um, the first major one is on the 16th of December, and then these figures from the Romanian security apparatus were sent to uh, Timisoara to put down the uprising. And remember this general's yeah. name, because I refer to him in my talk, because I interviewed him for the BBC uh, on the 6th of January 1990, and he gave me a fascinating account of his role in the events, um, that first of all leading up to Ceausescu's execution, but then immediately afterwards, in uh, <clears throat> after the execution. So in Timisoara, anti-Ceausescu protests began there. You can see this huge number of people in the crowd in the opera square, Piazza Opere, there, declare Timisoara a free city. So the army doesn't intervene here, although in Bucharest it does intervene before the 22nd of December. So in effect, we have in Romania already uh, two cities that contrast very much and re as regards to the control the communists have. Timisoara, a free city, no longer communist. 
the communist uh, local officials had been expelled from the city, uh, whereas still in Bucharest, Ceausescu was in power. Workers going on strike, as you can see from the, this Elba factory in Timisoara, they were joined by many other factory workers, and that crowd you saw in the previous slide was estimated to number more than 100,000 persons. Ceausescu, in the meantime, in spite of these protests in Timisoara, goes to Iran. Uh, there are mass protests by workers in Timisoara. Ceausescu returns and addresses the nation and blames the violence on hooligan elements. And this really uh, upset many people, not just in Timisoara, of course, but also in Bucharest, because the population of the major towns were well aware that the workers in Timisoara uh, were disgruntled. They were um, very critical of Ceausescu's austerity measures. And this criticism has developed over the last or the previous two years and a figure called Lorraine Fortuna establishes this Romanian Democratic Front in Timisoara, thus effectively ending communist rule in the city. Cluj, which is in Transylvania, central Transylvania, uh, on the 21st of December, you'll see there from the caption, 26 demonstrators shot dead by the army by peacefully, while they were peacefully protesting Kalin Nemesh, an actor, in fact, he was shot, but thankfully he wasn't killed, uh, and he uh, defied the troops here, which you can see we used live ammunition on a handful of demonstrators who were protesting. And notice this lady here kneeling, praying, uh, praying for <coughs> Nemesh uh, here. Uh, these are some of these figures who accompanied Nemesh. They were simply shot dead, as I said, by, without warning by the soldiers there in front of the Continental, uh, <coughs> Continental Hotel, which is undergoing renovation at the moment in Cluj. Again, another photograph from of the victims of the shootings. Ceausescu then, on the 22nd of December, attempts to address a second mass meeting. So he had addressed, or tried to address, on the previous day, a mass meeting, but he was interrupted by shouts, whistles, boos from the crowd. He attempts to address a meeting again on the 22nd, and as you can see from the bullet points there, stones are thrown, and he and his wife leave the Central Committee building by helicopter and eventually reach Tagovishte, where they're taken to army barracks. And there's the helicopter with them leaving the roof of the Central Committee building over here on the left. <coughs> the Ceausescu's then were executed uh, at this time, 4 p.m. local time, at the Tergovishte military base. They were really, it, one can't call it a trial, it was rather a can kangaroo court that was established. And as I said there, the show trial lasted a little over an hour. They were sentenced to death and uh, <coughs> General Stenkalescu, whom I mentioned in the previous slide, was present at the execution and related to me these details, uh, which contradict some of the accounts that have been given by the three soldiers who formed the execution squad. So uh, there was no order to give them fire, as some of the, or two of the um, members of the execution squad claim. The parachutists opened fire without such an order the commanding officer. These are details 
that Stenkolescu related to me on the 6th of January 1990, uh, and you can read them yourself. <coughs> and again, the international press reported, many of reporters claimed that Ceausescu sang the Internationale, and I asked gen the general, and he said he'd heard, well, that was his reply, he heard nothing. Uh, the firing happened too soon for the film crew covering the events to record it. So they were, because there was no order given, so Stengulescu told me the cameraman was taken by surprise and that's why the film of the execution is in the form it is because we don't see the opening of fire by the firing squad. Um, Ceausescu's were the last people to be executed in Romania before the abolition of capital punishment. So they have the, the date there. And there's a... Uh, photograph taken from the Romanian cameraman, army cameraman's film. Uh, <coughs> yes. Um, some slides of the reaction of the population. So here, uh, Romanian demonstrators sit on top of a tank. Uh, part of the uh, mystification, we might call it, regarding the revolution, and one which is perpetrated even today in this commemorative year, is that the army was sometime, was the army was on the side of the revolution? Um, this isn't the case from the evidence that we have. The army fired upon the people, unarmed people protesting peacefully in Timisoara, not the security police. The army only joined the uh, opposition, one might say, the demonstrators, anti-Ceausescu demonstrators, after Ceausescu left the Central Committee building on the 22nd of December. And that was partly because of an order given by General Sinkolescu. And again, I can tell you more about that if you're interested. So here are a few um, photographs of people who took up weapons, uh, many of them young people who, in fact, had only a rudimentary knowledge of how to use an AK-47. Uh, <clears throat> and that was partly the reason why there were so many uh, victims in the revolution, because troops and civilians were firing just at random at each other, uh, and many people were caught in the crossfire. Uh, again, another photograph. Sniper fire. Snipers probably, probably, no one is still certain, from the anti-terrorist brigade of the security police. <coughs> uh, seen in the Piazza Repubblici, it was, uh, so in the Republic Square, as it was called, uh, still in December 1989, and notice the burnt-out roof of this is the Central University Library because fire on the previous evening had been directed from the former Royal Palace, which stands opposite the Central European, uh, sorry, Central University Library in Bucharest. And soldiers returning fire. You see, this is typical of the way they return fire. Well, uh, often we have we have shots of civilians standing up here. The snipers returning fire actually shot more civilians than they shot soldiers. These are members of the uh, anti-terrorist brigade and this was a, a case of friendly fire uh, which led to the deaths of these figures. All sorts of uh, theories have been uh, advanced since the revolution about whether these were these soldiers were acting in support of Ceausescu or not. But the uh, conclusion uh, that some historians draw from analyzing the materials that are available, and especially the oral testimony 
from figures from the Minister of Defence at the time, from commanders of this group, is that it was simply a case of mistaken identity. These soldiers here, or members of the U USLA, were shot dead by soldiers guarding the Ministry of Defence. Part of the uh, <coughs> damage to the Central University Library. Um, in fact, I was part of a fundraising body in the UK in uh, December uh, 1990, which uh, was established, uh, which raised 400,000 books we shipped to Bucharest um, from uh, London. Uh, there was a mass appeal in the British press and on the BBC, and four of us, four academics, uh, launched this appeal, and we took the books, or we accompanied some of them. There were 32 trucks huge trucks, 16 from the Netherlands, 16 from the UK that delivered these 400,000 books to help the Central Library restock its resources and most of them were in English. Um, I, I like this photograph because it shows the solidarity of uh, citizens with the militia here. These are figures from the police effectively the militia but you can see they're fighting uh, this is post 22nd December, but fighting against snipers who I suspect were part of the uh, anti-terrorist brigade and perhaps the security detail of Ceausescu who um, were trying to <coughs> bring Ceausescu, restore him to power up until Ceausescu's execution on the 25th of December. Uh, and again, the array of tanks which were drawn up. Again, this is after 22nd of December in the Republic Square. Demonstrators at that meeting at which, after which Ceausescu fled from the Central Committee building, so down with the tyrant is what is um, displayed here uh, on the banner. And uh, a soldier giving the victory sign. This uh, victory sign, when I went in from Bulgaria with one of the BBC camera crews in late December, all the way from the frontier, Bulgarian frontier with Romania, uh, our car was, uh, was given the thumbs up Churchillian sign as we passed because we placed a Union Jack on the front of the Mercedes we had to make sure or to try and help the Romanian military know that we weren't coming back to restore Ceausescu, but we were uh, wanting to film events in Bucharest. And uh, <clears throat> this is, uh, again, as you can see, a shrine um, in the street close to the Central Committee for, uh, I think, one of the, one, obviously one of the persons who was shot dead during the demonstrations on the evening of the 22nd of December. And then finally, uh, the Hero Cemetery, as it's called, which was built very quickly, but is a very moving place, white marble, for many of the victims uh, of the revolution in Bucharest. And some of the photo credits. Okay, so um, just a final slide here. The uh, total number of deaths in the revolution was reported as that figure, 1,104. Um, and the National Salvation Front is the structure which comes into place um, after the collapse of the Ceausescu regime, but people by or composed 
of largely, largely, not totally, largely Communist Party members. So this is why still many Romanians talk about, in fact, um, a coup in Romania, because so many figures in the National Salvation Front which come to power were figures who, one might say, occupy the second tier of the Romanian Communist Party under Ceausescu. And the NSF, the, or the Council for the Front of the National Salvation Front, set up to run the country then after Ceausescu's flight. Ion Iliescu declared president, Petre Roman prime minister. Um, all the major decisions, including these ones, were taken by uh, these figures here, uh, all of whom I interviewed in early January 1990. So I was able to compare their accounts, and indeed I... Um, I'm still in touch with Voikulescu Voikan. Mr. or President Iliescu is very ill at the moment, so I haven't been able to speak to him recently. And Rukan and Militaro passed away some years ago. So I'll talk a little bit more in my presentation about the revolution and whether it was a revolution, a coup, or a people's uprising. But as I say, I've given the slideshow just to give you some historical background. So um, I'm going to sit down and read out my paper about my experience with the BBC. <clears throat> so I've uh, titled it, um, Observing the Revolution, Some Personal Reflections. The Romanian Revolution was, for me, my own personal revolution. It brought me, to use Andy Warhol's expression, my 15 minutes of fame, for it catapulted me in Romanian studies at the University College in London into the public eye in the UK. On the 16th of December 1989, I was watching television news coverage at home featuring protests in Timisoara when the phone rang. It was a call from John Simpson, Chief Foreign Affairs Correspondent of BBC Television, inviting me to come down to the news centre in West London to discuss the situation in Romania. Earlier in that year, 1989, in May, John had asked me to suggest contacts in Romania for a documentary which he was fronting on Ceausescu's draconian austerity measures and his plans to systematize, that is to phase out, up to half of Romania's 14,000 villages by withdrawing funding. John had wanted me to accompany him on that visit, but I was unable to do so since I had been declared persona non grata in the previous December by the Romanian authorities for, I quote, my hostile comments in the British media on the Romanian regime, end of quote. Now then John sent a car to pick me up, and I brought John up to date with Ceausescu's attempts to shore up his regime by ever-increasing appeals to national unity and stage-managed displays of support for his policies, culminating in his address to the 14th Party Congress on the 20th of November 1989, for which he received more than 30 standing ovations. On the 20th of December, after, after Ceausescu's televised address to his people, which was monitored by the BBC, John put me on the spot by asking, well, Dennis, is this the end for Ceausescu or not? Until Timisoara, I had been confident that Ceausescu would buck the trend for change in Central Europe, but his appearance on television flanked by his stony-faced gerontocratic wife and an almost fossilized Politburo, instilled in me a conviction that this moment marked the beginning of the end of his regime 
and I replied to John's question, yes. Right, then I'm off to Romania, but I want you to be my anchor here in my office while I'm away, was his response. Thus began a week of virtually uninterrupted work for me in the BBC television's headquarters in West London. I did not return home for two nights, but slept in an office at the BBC. As, an <clears throat> as anchor in London, I had access to reports from the major international news agencies as they came through on a teleprinter, as well as to television feeds from camera crew from 36 international TV companies dispersed around Romania, among them stations from the USSR, Libya, France, West Germany, Hungary and the UK. I was thus witness to the meetings convoked on the 22nd of December in the central squares of the cities and major towns of Romania, among them Bucharest, Timisoara, Pitesht, Cluj-Napoca, Oradea, Arad, Baco, Suchava. Ostensibly, these meetings gathered to show support for Ceausescu. On the 26th of December, John, who had entered Romania with a camera crew by road from Yugoslavia, since Bucharest Otopen Airport had been closed after a serious friendly fire incident, called me from the Romanian capital with an invitation to join him with a second crew on the assumption that with Ceausescu's execution the previous day, the ban on my entry to the country would no longer be applied. On the 29th of December, I flew to Warsaw with two BBC camera crews and reporters, and after a four-hour wait, we caught a, Bal a Balkan Airlines flight to Sofia. Upon arrival, we slept fitfully for four hours on the floor of the airport until we were secured cars for the journey overland to Bucharest. The cars were two dark blue Mercedes hired from Hertz and a black Jeep, all three driven by Bulgarians who were, re were each accompanied by what we took to be a Bulgarian security officer. We drove gingerly through deep snow up, the da up to the Danube at Rousse, where barely awake after our previous sleepless night, we decided to rest before crossing into Romania. At dinner in our hotel, we met up with a couple of British reporters who had just come out of Romania en route to the UK. In my state of exhaustion, their graphic accounts of shooting in Bucharest failed to move me in any way, but did make enough of an impact for the two news producers who had clearly come well prepared for signalling our affiliation to unfurl two large Union Jacks and secure them over the bonnets of each of the Mercedes. At daybreak on the next morning, the 31st of December, we drove in our lone convoy of three vehicles off across the Danube to the Romanian frontier at Georgiou. As the only speaker of Romanian in our group, I acted as spokesperson person, explaining to the duty passport officer that we were joining another BBC team already in Bucharest, and without much ado and payment of $40 for each of the visas which he stamped into our passports, he wished us well, warning us that there had been sporadic shooting in some of the villages on our route to Bucharest. In fact, in every village through which we passed during our 60-kilometre journey, the inhabitants, men, women and children, applauded us, giving the Churchillian V for Victory sign in recognition perhaps both of our flag as well as their own victory over oppression. We reached Bucharest at midday and joined John Simpson at the Intercontinental Hotel. Two of the windows in my room on the 11th floor had bullet holes in them. 
John advised me not to stray in front of them, to pull the curtains at night, and to use only the table lamps because snipers were still active. Fear of snipers certainly kept Eucharistas off the streets at nightfall, a state that I soon became acutely aware of that very evening, since John asked me to accompany him by car to Cartier Ariane, so the, this was a, a district in the south of the city, to interview the widow of a young man who had been shot dead on the evening of the 22nd of December during anti-Ceausescu protests. Occasional gunshots could be heard as the car, driven by a cameraman, made its way slowly through several inches of snow. At one point, the tyres lost their grip and we were stuck, a lone vehicle under the light of a single street lamp at the foot of the half-completed Casa Repubblici, this, half, this huge building which is only rivalled in size by the Pentagon. Ceausescu's gigantic palace, the largest building in Europe, shrouded in darkness. As further cracks of gunfire rang out close by, John turned to me, sitting in the back beside Wendy, our producer from Wales, and said, well, Dennis, you're expendable. Please get out and give us a push. He then smiled and got out <laughs> of the car <clears throat> with me, and we together lost no time in putting our combined weight behind the trunk of the car. To our relief, the wheels gripped immediately, and we smartly resumed our seats. But this was not the last of our hitches. Without a street map and in a virtual blackout, the product of Ceausescu's energy-saving measures, we could not locate the widow's address, which I was aware was close to the army barracks. Anxious to get directions, I wound down my window and called out to a woman trudging through the snow carrying two bulging plastic bags. When I asked for her help, she dropped the bags and screamed, Securitate, Securitate. Immediately, people rushed from their houses and surrounded our car. <clears throat> I got out and produced my passport, hoping that the woman would realize from my accent and physio physiognomy that I was not Romanian. But in her, her hysteria, she, she shrieked, we know you Securitate people, and pointing to our Mercedes, no longer with its Union Jack, she said, you use dark car with special number plates. In fact, we have Bulgarian number plates and fake identities. <coughs> I then asked the flaxen-haired Wendy to get out of the car and said calmly to the woman, look here, do you really think this la lady is Securitate? No, she's from the BBC. We're all from the BBC. In the front rank of the crowd was an elderly man who had been following this exchange intently. He now stepped forward, put his hand on the lady's arm to calm her down, and then with a smile said, I believe you. You must understand that our desire to see the end of the Ceausescu's has created a sense of paranoia in many. How can I help, he offered. I translated his words for our team. His trust in us satisfied the crowd, which quickly dispersed. In fact, we happened to be only a street away from the widow's home. The elderly man knew her and walked alongside the car until we reached her house. His presence seemed to reassure the widow, who, with a young child holding her hand, invited us in. After the interview, John discreetly gave her a wad of banknotes, and we returned to our car and to the hotel. I have recounted this incident in an effort to give some sense of the atmosphere reigning in Bucharest in the immediate aftermath of Ceausescu's overthrow. 
Paranoia, mistrust, uncertainty about the future, a glut of firearms in circulation, some in the hands of young men fired by machismo who had little idea of how to use a rifle or an automatic weapon. Indeed, many of the conscripts whom I witnessed exchanging fire with snipers returned shots over the heads of civilians, placing the latter in a direct line of fire from the adversary. Such basic failures in training resulted in many friendly fire casualties in Bucharest. The danger posed by snipers was vividly brought home to me. On the evening of 7th of January 1990, I was making my way along a lugubrious street in the centre of, of the city to visit a family friend when, stepping into the light of a street lamp, I suddenly heard a crack and then a ping from a low wall fronting a house which I was passing. On the pavement in front of me lay the head of a bullet. As I went down to, uh, bent down to examine it, a malicious man, a malicious man, a militia man, sorry, rifle in hand, came running out of the shadows and shouted to me to get out of the light. I left the bullet, moved to the shadow of a car and crouched down behind it. After a few minutes, the militia man who had taken cover behind another vehicle crept forward, picked up the bullet and handed it to me. It was still warm. There, he said, you were a foot away from death. There's a sniper in the block of flats opposite and we're trying to take him out. He asked me what I was doing on the street at that particular hour and I explained that I'd come to visit a friend. He asked me for the name of the friend and the number of his house and from my accent realized that I was not Romanian. When I told him that I was British, he made the sign of the cross and exclaimed, God was watching over you tonight. Fortunately, I was only a few steps away from my destination. He accompanied me to the gate and then retreated into the gloom. I shouted my thanks to him. The ubiquity of snipers in Bucharest spawned a host of rumors about their aims and allegiance. Indeed, rumor factories were the only institutions which alongside the Securitate had worked overtime during Ceausescu's rule. On the streets and in the press, the snipers were generally dubbed terrorists. Some, remand, some Romanians regard them as members of the Securitate, while informed commentators describe them more specifically as rogue elements of the anti-terrorist movement or anti-terrorist unit, in fact, this USLA. This unit, up until Ceausescu's execution on Christmas Day, fought to restore the dictator to power, but after his death, it gradually faded into the shadows. A team of three or four men who broke into the residence of the British ambassador opposite the Romanian TV studios in Bucharest in the evening of the 22nd of December and installed a machine gun on the roof fitted the description of all the above categories that I've given. They sprayed the TV studios for more than an hour before tank fire reduced the residence to a burnt out shell. The gunmen were never caught. This incident can be catalogued alongside the sudden explosion of gunfire which erupted in the main square facing the former Central Committee building on the evening of the 22nd of December. Just as the crowd was being addressed by a series of speakers expressing their condemnation of the Ceausescu regime. Who carried out the attack, which left the building pockmarked with billet holes and set the adjacent university library on fire, has never been established. It left several people dead, and some, arg some argue that it was a diversion 
staged in order to give credibility to the existence of counter-revolutionary forces who were attempting to restore the dictator to power and therefore to give legitimation to the creation of the National Salvation Front proclaimed barely hours earlier by Ion Iliescu. This view sat comfortably with the argument that a popular revolt begun in Timisoara was hijacked by second echelon communists led by Iliescu and turned into a revolution. Others went further and claimed that the events in Timisoara were the first step in a cons conspiracy led by anti-Ceausescu communists fronted by Iliescu to overthrow Ceausescu but to maintain communists, if not the party, in power. Many Romanians felt that they had been duped and that the sacrifice made in December 1989 had been to no avail. Their view may be summoned up in the verdict that while the Communist Party was declared dead in January 1990, no one ever produced a death certificate. They pointed to the presence of Lieutenant General Victor Stankulescu, the first Deputy Minister of Defence under Ceausescu, in the National Salvation Front Provisional Government. Stankulescu, who had played, it was proved later, a prominent role in the repression by the army of peaceful demonstrations in Timisoara on 17th and 18th of December, was appointed Minister of the National Economy on the 28th of December 1989 and held the position until the 16th of February 1990 when he became Minister of Defence. My presence in Bucharest with the BBC affords me another reminiscence of the aftermath of the revolution, one involving Stankulescu. On January the 6th, I was with the actor Ion Karamitru, who together with the poet Mircea Dinescu had been amongst the first figures to appear on Romanian TV after Ceausescu's flight from Bucharest with an emotional appeal to support the revolution. Karamitru was an old friend of mine and on learning of my presence in Bucharest with the BBC, invited me to the seat of the National Salvation Front Provisional Government in the Palato Victoria, so this is one of the major buildings in the central centre of Bucharest, where he had been given an office. He offered me a position as Head of Cultural Affairs in the county of Bacau in Moldova, Romanian Moldova, saying that he wanted to replace all Ceausescu yes-men in the field of culture. When I asked what was special about Baco, he replied that it had just come to his lips, but, I could, uh, <laughs> but that I could choose any county I wanted. I thanked him profusely for the honour, but declined on the grounds that local Romanians would find it difficult to accept a non-Romanian in the position of cultural affairs director of their county. Whilst we were talking, the phone rang and Karamitru picked it up. At the other end of the line was, I learned, General Stankulescu, who asked Karamitru to put me on the line. Stankulescu invited me to pay him a visit and gave me his location. He did not have transport available for me and asked Karamitru to provide a vehicle from the government pool at Palato Victoria. I agreed to go and jumped into a jeep which was mating for me at the entrance. The driver then requested me to give him directions to Stankulescu's office. He explained that he had been drafted in to Bucharest from the provinces together with other drivers since the new government did not trust the Communist Party drivers who had been laid off and that he was unfamiliar therefore with the geography of Bucharest. Fortunately, I knew how to get to the General's office. 
we had an amusing conversation on the way because he asked me to describe what the various buildings were that we passed down on Calia Victoria. Uh, on my arrival, I was escorted by two armed guards in civilian clothes up to the fourth floor of a building on Calia Victoria and ushered into Stankolescu's room. He too was in plain clothes. He explained that he wanted to get an urgent message to the British government, but since the British ambassador could not be found, he did not know whom to contact in Bucharest. He had been told that I was in the capital with the BBC and asked me to pass his message on. It was a request for medicines, food, and assistance with restoring the country's electrical generating capacity. I told John Simpson of the message. He transmitted it by BBC satellite to London. I had informed Constantinescu that I knew at least two British, em British diplomats who had remained on duty at the embassy and said, that it would, and said that it would be appropriate to try to contact them as well. He had agreed and I walked to the embassy. There I showed my passport to some Romanian soldiers at the entrance and was allowed <clears throat> in. And in the courtyard I found our military attaché to whom I related General Stankolescu's message. The attaché thanked me for taking the trouble to contact him and a couple of months later I was thanked personally for my gesture by the Under Secretary of State at our British Foreign and Commonwealth Office. The controversial nature of the events of the revolution is reflected in their, histori in their historiography. Here's a sample of the views. So Timothy Garton Ash, who I expect the name is well known to you. This is what he writes. Someone asks, but should we call this a revolution? After all, a revolution involves violence. In fact, we always have to qualify it. We call it velvet, we call it peaceful, we call it evolutionary. I call it revolution a mixture of revolution and reform. Curiously enough, the moment when people in the West finally thought there was a revolution was when they saw television pictures of Romania. Crowds, tanks, shooting, blood in the street. They said, that, we know that is a revolution. And of course, the joke is it was the only one that wasn't. The Romanian revolution, here's a quote from a Romanian historian. The Romanian Revolution of December 1989 is a controversial moment in our history. The disputes involve both a synthetic definition of the event, was it a revolution, a people's revolt of a coup d'etat, as well as the reconstruction of some of its particular aspects, and especially the role played by the participants, whether individuals or institutions. This derives from the uncertainty which hovers over the agent provocateur over the causes and political effects of the principal, uh, over the causes and political effects of the principal events of the December 1989 um, <clears throat> event, Ruxanda Cesareanu tried to place the various accounts of the revolution in three categories. First, she said, of those who believe in a straightforward, successful mass uprising against a dictatorship. The second, of those who believe in a coup d'état carried out by either internal or external forces, and third, of those who believe in a combination of the first two explanations. Another conclusion reached by a different historian of Romania. The revolution, a Romanian historian, I ought to point out, the revolution of 1989 had a marked anti-communist character exemplified by the following, the chanting of anti-communist slogans, the destruction of communist flags, 
red flags with the hammer and the sickle, the symbolic flag of the national flag from which had been cut out, as you saw in the first slide, the communist emblem of the country, the removal of adjectives communist or socialist from public signs, the removal from public places of Romanian and Soviet communist statues and monuments, the removal of names of communist activists or of communist slogans from public buildings. The, the television or Romanian television was used to create the majority of diversions, the most effective being the permanent danger of death embodied in the terrorists faithful to the dictator of Ceausescu. The danger seemed entirely credible given that in the period 22nd to 27th of December, there were 942 deaths recorded and thousands of, of wounded. Afterwards, not a single terrorist was arrested and tried. So end of quotes. Were then the events of December 1989 in Romania a revolution? Following Peter Siani Davis's analysis, which I would recommend as the still the most reliable book on the revolution, the word revolution is associated with two popular metaphors. The first is that, is that a relatively quick and violent single incident conventionally distinguished by a time-related epithet, epithet such as the October Revolution in Russia or the February Revolution of, 1948 in, of, of 1848 in Paris. And his analysis would argue that the Romanian Revolution of December 1989 might be added to this list. Secondly, the idea of revolution can embrace a longer period of social change, often spanning many decades, in which, in which case it is usually referred to in more general terms as the Russian, French, or Chinese revolution. The claim can be made that there was a rupture in, so, a rupture in sovereignty in Romania, represented by the transfer of power from the Romanian Communist Party to the National Salvation Front. There were competing centers of power in Timisoara after the establishment of the Romanian Democratic Front on, by Lorene Fortuna on the 20th of December in opposition to the, rem to the remnants of the Communist Party organization in the county council building. Indeed, such a duality of power can be extrapolated to distinguish Timisoara from the rest of the country in the period between the 20th and 25th of December. Are we to disqualify the use of the term revolution in the Romanian context, not because the rupture in power took place in sovereignty, but because there was no rupture, no rupture in continuity? That is to say, the communists nevertheless took over power. Or is it that some see the authenticity of revolution defined not only in policy change, but also in a change of mentality? We can argue that Nicolae Ceausescu's overthrow was not a coup d'etat. As, as has been pointed out, Erich Honecker in East Germany, Tudor Vivkov in Bulgaria, and Milos Jakes in Czechoslovakia were all victims of palace, coup, palace coups. And had Ceausescu been removed after the December 17th political Politburo meeting and replaced by a fellow member, he could have been placed in that category. But his retreat from the center of Bucharest in the face of vociferous protests bears the mark of revolution, as does the mass mobilization, widespread violence, spontaneous creation of revolutionary institutions, and the subsequent fierce struggle between the revolutionary contenders on the streets of Romania's cities. That multiple sovereignty did not last longer 
can be explained by two, at first sight, rather contradictory conditions. First, high levels of coercion prevented the appearance of an effective opposition prior to the revolution, and secondly, at the same time, such was the advanced level of state breakdown in Romania that in the end the regime needed only a limited challenge before it collapsed. The questions raised by the above selection of viewpoints have remained unanswered owing to the confusion surrounding a number of events whose clarity has been obscured by the rumour factories which I mentioned earlier. Matters have also been confused by a series of writers who invented conspiracy theories which have no convincing evidence to support them. The feeling that many had of being misled or that the sacrifice made in December 1989 was to no avail was aggravated by the suspicion that the fighting in Bucharest after Ceausescu's flight was a diversion carried out to give the impression of the revolution and therefore to give legitimacy to the National Salvation Front which emerged after the dictator's downfall. These questions were put by John Simpson to Virgil Magorianu, the director of the SRI, that is the Post-Communist Security Service, in a lengthy interview that he gave on the 6th of December 1994 at the SRI's headquarters, which I translated. Magorianu's replies drew heavily on a preliminary report made by the SRI about the, as he called it, the events in December 1989 from which I will quote. These are Magorianu's words. The beginning of the revolution at Timisoara has not been regarded by everybody as merely the expression of spontaneous revolt of a population which over the years had become profoundly dissatisfied both materially and spiritually. On the contrary, numerous scenarios have been attributed to the revolution, placing its origins either outside Romania or within it in various plots which had long been hatched." End of quote. These scenarios were invoked because the events of late, of late December 89 were marked by certain deeds which in the opinion of the SRI, and I quote from Magurianu again, point to the premeditated acts of certain individuals who are to be distinguished from the crowds who came out spontaneously onto the streets. End of quotes. Among such acts cited by the report, the SRI report, were those of a group of youths who on the afternoon of 16th of December, at a point when the number of people gathered outside the home of parts of the Turkish had fallen considerably, broke the windows of several shops and blocked the buses. Question marks were also raised in the SRI's report about certain acts of provocation against the army in Timisoara. These required, it was claimed in the SRI report, an expert hand and consisted of blocking the tracks of tanks by placing strips of wire in them, using special keys to open the spare diesel tanks and setting fire to the oil and throwing Molotov cocktails and ball bearings at the troops. The SRI report went on and it was quoted by Magurianu. It should be pointed out in reply to these claims of premeditated acts that exactly the same measures have often been taken by demonstrators against security forces in other parts of the world during periods of civil unrest without there being any accusations of conspiracy or foreign intervention levelled to explain them." End of quote of Magorianu's remarks. However, there was concrete evidence of foreign involvement in the revolution 
according to the SRI report, SRI report, more specifically a Soviet intervention. And here again I quote from Magariani. The data and existing information led to the conclusion that the Soviet apparatus of intelligence and diversion was involved in all phases of the events. Beginning on the 9th of December 1989, the number of Soviet tourists in, inverted commas, private cars grew considerably from about 80 per day to 1,000. The occupants, two or three to a car, were mostly men of athletic build aged between 25 and 40. They avoided hotels, sleeping in their cars, and in the rare cases when they required hotel services, they paid in hard currency. Remember, we're talking about the East European bloc. Most of these cars were en route to Yugoslavia, but some of them were forbidden entry to that, to that country because weapons were found in the vehicles that they were traveling in. One thing is certain, that during the events in Timisoara, there were a large number of so-called Soviet tourists. The report goes on from the SRI. After a short while, oh sorry, a short while after the revolution, there was an accident involving a car in which a Soviet citizen and another man were traveling. While repairs were being carried out on the car at a garage, 12 Romanian army camouflage uniforms were found together with a Soviet tunic with the pips of a major. The two men claimed that they were officers in the reserve and that they had previously fought in <coughs> Afghanistan. End of quote from the report. Direct Soviet involvement in the events during the revolution has been the subject of speculation amongst historians and commentators. The issue is not so much one about the presence of Soviet tourists in Romania in late December 89, but of the scale of that presence. Convincing evidence to support the contention that 25,000 of the 37,000 Soviet tourists who allegedly visited or transited Romania in the two weeks before the fight of Ceausescu stayed on in the country for several months has yet to be produced. And this figure of 25,000 has been quoted by a number of historians, some Western historians, but as I point out, they don't accompany these allegations with any credible evidence. The SRA report continued, and again I quote, invisible and silent, anonymous and impeccably trained, merciless and well-armed, the terrorists, these are probably the figures from the anti-terrorist unit, the terrorists constituted in the minds of the Romanian public the most obsessive presence of the last days of December 1989. If we add to the above catalogue of considerations stray bullets which cause death and wounding, personal vendettas, the use of weapons by people untrained in their use, panic reactions, bravura deeds, the reasons behind so many human sacrifices and material losses become less mysterious. Fate has its own way of rewarding the courageous and of punishing tyrants. Despite the divisiveness of Ceausescu's policies towards the peoples of Romania, their shared experience of suffering under his rule brought them together. It was the defiance of Turkish which provided the catalyst for the display of ethnic solidarity which sparked, the overthrow, or sparked off the overthrow of the dictator in Timisoara. This convergence of circumstance started the events which led to the revolution. One may argue that it was only a matter of time before Ceausescu fell, given his isolation in the international arena and the growing descent of home. 
but it was the merit of Turkish and his supporters, both Romanian and Hungarian, that they pressed on with their protests against the regime's abuse of power, which was characteristic of a denial of human rights, which typified the Ceausescu regime. Turkish's stand, based on the right of his church to defend the interests of its faithful, transcended the narrowness of a sectarian claim and acquired the symbol of a common cause of peoples united against oppression. Thank you. So I think we'll open it up for questions. Um, I might uh, just get the ball rolling by yes. asking if you could um, tell us a little bit more about the Securitate, their, the origins of the Securitate and perhaps their nature a bit. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to know why uh, their path was different from that of the army um, during this during this period and if if um, th their actions um, or their path uh, offers us any insight on whether or not this was a proper revolution or a coup d'etat mm -hmm. or something else. Okay, I'll try to remember the uh, parts of your question. First of all, the Securitate, like the other state security organizations in the Eastern Bloc, if you look at their charters, it's noticeable that they're there to defend the socialist order. It doesn't say to protect the citizen of the state against an adversary, against threats to the power of the Com uh, Communist Party, but to defend the socialist order. So within that, of course, we understand they're there to defend, they are a political police, a classic definition, in fact, to defend the Communist Party. So they, at the time of the revolution, there were about 14,500 in the various directorates, another 25,000 troops of the Securitate, a separate form of militia, but that came under the control, the leadership of one of Ceausescu's brothers, Nikolai Andrutsa Ceausescu, and it was rumored that Ceausescu's father, who sadly was an habitual drunk, forgot he already had one son called Nikolai, so he had two sons called Nikolai, and that's why the second one, the younger one, was called Nikolai Andrutsa, mm -hmm. unlike Nikolai Ceausescu, the dictator. Okay, so that's a parenthesis. So the, the Securitate was a well-organized, body that successfully, we can argue, for several decades defended the communist regime against any opponent. Um, they intruded severely into the lives of citizens. The mass, we might say, repression of the Romanian population was well known from the late 1940s right up until really the uh, beginning of the 1960s when even under Gheorghe Udej, Ceausescu's predecessor, introduced an amnesty for many political pressure, uh, political opponents. So in fact, the level of repression did uh, reduce fall considerably. But the Securitate, like the army, remained loyal to Ceausescu. They took an oath, personal oath, to defend Ceausescu, Nikolai Ceausescu personally. And that's one of the reasons, I think, why several of the figures in the Securitate acted on behalf of Ceausescu after his flight on December the 22nd to uh, bring him back to power, that is to remove the National Salvation Front to uh, try to intervene in the, um, to remove, to release Ceausescu after he'd been held in the military barracks in Turgovishte. And the reason he was held in the military barracks was precisely so that the new National Salvation Government could ward off any attempts by the Securitate to release him. Um, so the army did not 
come out on the side of the revolution initially. As I was saying, they shot the demonstrators in Timisoara, not the security police or the security target. So we have evidence of that. We have the records. It's after the 22nd of December, when Ceausescu flees, that then General Stenkolescu gives the order. He remained in the Central Committee building, but he gives the order for the units that had come originally to guard the Central Committee building to actually join the side of the revolutionaries who were gathered in front of the building. So the army was up, with, is with us. Armata Iquinoi was the slogan that suddenly began to appear when 24 hours earlier some soldiers had shot demonstrators, unarmed demonstrators. What happened to the security Securitate um, afterwards? Well, they became the oligarchs of Romania. They had amassed billions of dollars collectively. Forget, don't forget that the Romanian regime sold its Jews, it sold its, West, it sold its Saxons, and there was a head tax of $8,000 on mature Saxons and Jews. And over a period of, if we're talking about Germany, West Germany, so since 1979 up until 89, 200,000 West Germans were able to leave Romania on payment of a head tax uh, from periods from 1949 to 52 and then from again the late 50s up until 89 large numbers of Jews so several hundred thousand Jews were able to leave on payment of a head tax where did this money go it went into accounts controlled by the Securitate controlled by one of Ceausescu's brothers in Vienna and if you look at the figures who hold money in Romania today, they're the children of, or not all of them, of course, but many of them are the children of Securitate officers involved in the direct sale of citizens of Romania to Western countries. Um, did I answer all the points? I, I think so. So, so, so uh, yeah, I was just asking what you know, what this, what this uh, has to say about whether or not this was a proper revolution yeah. or not. Okay, I, I think this is. I can understand why uh, many Romanians, friends of mine, in fact, took part in the revolution. Feel there hasn't been a proper revolution because, uh, first of all, the second elite echelon communists dominated the National Salvation Front, and then the figures from the Securitate again, several of whom had never been brought to trial for their actions during 19, or up to 1989, um, they feel there hasn't been a proper revolution because there hasn't been a proper settling legally of accounts. Uh, uh, but on the other hand, I would say there has been a revolution because there's a multi-party system. Um, the press, okay, it's dominated by certain political groups, but at least it's a relatively free press, depends who controls the press of course, but there's competition or some competition. Um, people, Romanians have the right to hold a passport. Before the revolution it was a privilege. So most Romanians who left Romania before 1989, I shouldn't say most, but many of them left after being given what the Securitate called a missionary mission. And they were required under the emission release of their passport to report back to the Securitate on whom they met and what they did. Now, that doesn't mean to say every one of them did that, because many of them didn't. But we have access to the records now. So um, this control that the state security have over citizens um, is one which uh, is embarrassing still to many figures in the Romanian 
government today. And that is why, again, we have these problems, I think, of corruption, the fact that it's linked to the inability of Romanian agencies, anti-corruption agencies, to follow through, to trace what happens to the money. $950 million disappeared in 1989 from the bank accounts of what was called the Bank of Foreign Trade, which was directed by Securitate offices anyway. What happened to that money? Well, we have some idea of where it is. But it's difficult to prove, you know, in court where that money has gone. Swiss bank accounts, mm -hmm. uh, offshore accounts in Cayman Islands, and British-controlled territories as well. <laughs> wow. Okay, well, uh, so, <coughs> Ambassador, yes. would you like to ask uh, question? Two questions. Yes. Uh, first, on Securitate, and it's continuing, you know, whether it ever died, you know, it's like, sort of like Dracula. Um, could, you, could you speak up? <laughs> I just say, the, the mythology in Romania is is that Securitate is like Dracula, like never really died. Yeah. Um, I believed, and maybe this is just because of the way I was trained as an ambassador, that struggle over corruption that we always fought for as the U.S. government uh, was in effect a continuation of this struggle between Securitate, the oligarchy, yes. and the money, yeah. and Western values. Yeah. wondered whether you agreed with that. And the second question, I had a dinner party when I was ambassador with Iliescu, uh, who was then, by then retired, Al Moses, who was a former oh, US ambassador, who, yes. by the way, for those of you who don't know, he was one of my predecessors, was instrumental in getting yeah, the he was, out, yeah, of, yeah. out of Romania. Yeah. And I tried to pin down Iliescu about the role of the US government at the time of the revolution. Jim yeah. Baker was the Secretary of State. And there is a sort of a myth that there may have been some understanding yes. between, uh, between the Bush administration and Gorbachev yeah. as to how peacefully to, tr yeah. to transfer power basically without a real revolution. Yeah. Do you believe that? I mean, is there no. evidence of that? I, I don't think there's any evidence, Mark, because if we look at the transcript of the Malta agreement, well, I think yeah. it's 4th of December, 1989, and again, is not the only <laughs> senior politician who believes that Romania was discussed at the meeting between Bush and Gorbatov, but as far as I can tell, it wasn't. Well, there was maybe one mention about Romania, but in no sort of uh, definitive way. And so the U.S. didn't, uh, for the U.S., and neither for Gorbachev was it uh, an issue in any way. I would say... Um, with the U U.S. involvement, um, certainly since 1990, as you point out, Mark, I know myself that, for example, Vice President Biden, when he came in 2004, I mean, he made a very forceful address in front of students at Bucharest University, and then another address in front of a number of Romanian parliamentarians stressing. 2009, 2009, not 2004. Uh, sorry, 2009. Yeah, yeah sorry, I was confusing it. Yeah. yeah. 2009, uh, but also 2014, that was, I yes, think, he, he, came he came back in 2014. That's when he gave these two addresses, which were very forcibly um, pressing the need for addressing corruption. And in fact, only last week, the European Union issued its only report on what is known as the cooperation and verification mechanism, which Romania is under and has been under ever, sign, ever since it joined the European Union on the 1st of January 2007, it actually said in that report that Romania 
had regressed regarding the fight against corruption and therefore it was maintaining its cooperation and verification mechanism um, in Romania. And Laura Corvesi, who of course you helped a great deal, Mark, she was the public prosecutor in the department, anti-corruption department, when she was nominated by member states of the European Union earlier this year to be the new European Union public prosecutor. So a new position in the European Union. The Romanian government opposed, even when it was the president holding the presidency of the European Union, the Romanian government opposed the nominee from Romania made by Germany, France. And, I mean, an incredible situation and again indicative of the Romanians' attempt, I shouldn't say Romanians, but uh, certainly the, the um, PSD, the Social Democratic Party, is attempts to legalize corruption. That's how I described it. If we look at the various legal instruments that they tried to get passed in the Romanian parliament, I don't think you can escape the conclusion that this is a party that tries to legalize corruption. And up to now, it uh, has managed, uh, hasn't managed to fulfill that aim, although the DNA, as it's called, the anti-corruption anti department is still struggling to um, proceed with its corruption, anti-corruption program. And one of the basic problems is there's no provision in Romanian law for confiscating the proceeds of money laundering. You can money launder, you can defraud the state, you can be sentenced to several years jail, but there's no legal provision for, or, or I ought to say there is a legal provision, but it hasn't been enforced by even the DNA, the anti-corruption agency, that is confiscation of funds illegally obtained. That's still the case. I wanted just to add the, about the Securitate. Securitate is unique because it was the only communist secret police in East Central Europe that had an anti-Soviet directorate. So they were spying on Soviets, set up in 1978, and it was quite an extensive body. Uh, a little bit of publicity for my latest book. I give a breakdown of the directorates of the anti-Soviet uh, directorate. I do have a question going back to this um, feeling that some Romanians and many actually have that it was we do we do not 100% own the revolution, you know, stays yes. as, as much as we would like to. And one of the factors is that the can you comment a little bit on the Timisoara events? The fact that even the Western press through uh, Radio Free Europe, uh, there were numbers vehiculated like 4,001. 62 victims, which is never another thing. It's like we never know for sure how yeah. many victims and the precision of the number. Um, many said that mm -hmm. it points out to the fact that there were attempts to uh, push actually the people on the verge of despair yes. and cause them to go out and boo mm -hmm. Ceausescu and kind of sparkle the, the flame of the revolution. So can you comment a little bit on Timisoara and the fact that the, we were talking about the genocide, there was a real, yes. there were dead bodies already, yes. you know, like they were put up in the streets to push the, the crowds to go revolt, actually. Yeah. Staging, um, staging it, the revolution. Again, um, I, I've studied um, a number of accounts from Timisoara uh, demonstrators, and indeed I have a number of friends amongst Timisoara historians who try to keep me up to date because <laughs> every, especially now on the eve of the 
um, of the commemoration of the events there. I get a lot of emails and a lot of attachments about the latest research in Timishwara. It's, it's very difficult to substantiate these claims. I mean, the, figure, the figures that were published in the Western press were largely distorted simply because the Western press could only go on hearsay. They were the only, well, I won't say the only reliable correspondence, but much of the source uh, of the, regarding the number of victims in Timishwara came from Tanyug, the Yugoslav agency, because, of course, Romania, Timishwara is very close to Belgrade. I mean, it's only 70-odd kilometers down to the Yugoslav frontier. Uh, and so there were several Yugoslav journalists who were conveying these figures to Western journalists who in the town. And remember those journalists who got in from the West, most of them didn't speak Romanian. Um, mm -hmm. They were going on what Romanians told them, and many Romanians in Timisoara didn't know, as far as I could tell, uh, after the event, of course, because I only got in to Romania after the um, eight, late December. Um, so the genocide is clearly false, in my view. Again, we like to have some figures to back out these mm -hmm. claims, and there aren't any that I've seen, at any rate. Uh, also, the victims, uh, the number of victims, depending on whether you read army accounts or police accounts or judges' accounts, because there have been several judicial inquiries into the events, so you get a slightly different figure. But ultimately, the number of victims... Um, I haven't made a catalogue of the various accounts, but uh, I think it's probably less than 2,000 in Timishmara. Probably. I can't, I can't be sure. But the, as you say, the very fact that these rumours uh, passed around that there were 60,000 dead in Timishwara, that certainly uh, inspired crowds in other cities in Romania after the event. Yeah, we, we, were, fi we were waiting for it yeah. to happen. Yes. In my city, there was there were 14. I'm from Yash. Yes. December 14th, there were rumors that there were, we were supposed to go to on a protest. We were yes. not allowed to circulate in groups bigger than five yes. uh, because something was about to happen there before Timisoara, yeah. and it was the people were arrested and tortured, actually. So, yeah. Um, yeah. The in in Yash, I remember talking to Cassian Maria Spiridon, mm -hmm. you know, the writer who sent this pamphlet around distributed manifesto 14th of December so mm -hmm. days two or three days before yeah, the events before, in Timisoara yeah. and um, he was telling me that um, crowds couldn't come to assemble in the university mm -hmm. square there and the Securitate actually removed physically the tram stop yeah, in the right. square so that, that yeah, people couldn't so the tram yeah. didn't stop so people mm -hmm. couldn't so get out and join yeah yes, this yes. is before this is yeah. 14th of December there was an attempt before yeah, yeah so it's the 14th of yeah. 14th so of December, yeah. 14th yeah. of December in Yash, yeah. yeah. So, and I spoke to Spiridon, and I couldn't mm -hmm. believe it. And he was saying to me there was sudden influx of uh, men from the Dynamo, which is the militia mm -hmm. uh, football team and wrestling team, mm -hmm. suddenly occupied the hotel mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. on the evening of the 14th yeah. of December and then populated the square on the following day to make sure no one gathered there. And if they did, they remove them from the square. So the Securitate were pretty efficient. Uh, Professor Fielek? So my question is about a little earlier time, but it's a, a theme that's come up already a few times here, is the sort of continuity. Was there any sort of continuity between, say, the Romania of Antonescu and Iron Guard with the communists? I mean, did people sort of 
also kind of remake their careers and redefine themselves. Would you guys just say something about that? Yeah, um, well, <clears throat> in fact, uh, in 1948-49, a number of Iron Guardists, seeing which way the wind was blowing, uh, joined or offered to join the Communist Party. And indeed, um, there was the, the Communist Party in 1949 set up its own verification mechanism. But it failed to uh, really do its job properly because I think the number which allegedly, uh, the number of Iron Guardists who allegedly joined was nearly 150,000 in 1949. And this was an accusation that was brought against Anna Pauka in uh, her purge in 1952, that she, together with Vasile Luca and Teohari Georgescu, had f facilitated, I think the official phrase was the recruitment of anti-partinic, so anti-party elements into the Communist Party. And as I say, that was one of the reasons why she was removed, in, effectively, in the summer of 19. 52. So yes, a large number of former members of the Iron Guard joined the party, uh, and they, some of them, rose to fairly, I would say, locals, uh, fairly senior local positions, but not in the Politburo. And, and she, this was kind of inadvertently by Parker. Do you think they intentionally? Uh, inadvertently, I think, okay. because the whole procedure, the Communist Party. Um, first of all, you have to look at the way they were desirous of having what they called in communist um, jargon, healthy elements, oh, yeah. okay, healthy elements. So an unhealthy element was anyone who was a son uh, of a Protestant pastor, a Greek Catholic priest, um, a uh, banker, a teacher, any sort of teacher, a uh, university teacher, of course, um, anyone who'd been involved in the law profession and so on. So all these people were... Um, banned from joining the party, and on top of that, their children were banned from studying at university. So there's an interdiction. If you were the son of or daughter of someone who was of unhealthy origin, you could not attend Romanian university until 1963. And the interdiction, again, was not universal. So in, in Yash, it, didn't, in, it, wasn't in, it was removed in 62 in Yash. But in Bucharest and, Buc and Cluj, it stayed until 63. So some students spent their first year in Yash, and then when it was removed in Cluj, some of my Cluj friends studied in Yash for a year, and then they moved in 63 back to Cluj, from Cluj. So the, the restrictions were very severe ideologically, but the party was not uh, particularly vigilant uh, in what we say verifying the origins of many of its members because it needed to show, to demonstrate its membership, the strength of its membership. So a large number of people sort of crept through, if you like, the cracks in the verification and ended up uh, being members at the local level. This is also true of the Securitate because when you look at their recruitment process, so ideologically, so the supervision of recruits of the Securitate was done by the NKVD. And they were very hot on healthy origin or not, ideological grounds. So in the Securitate, we find in its 4,800 members when it was set up on the 30th of August, 1948, um, the majority of the lower ranks were plumbers, were waiters, were chauffeurs, uh, were people without higher education. The senior ranks were either figures who'd been trained in the USSR or had been members of the outlawed 
Communist Party. But again, uh, figures who, some of whom, not all of them, but some of the senior officers didn't have very much education. But the point about the senior officers, especially the ones who'd been trained in the Soviet Union, was that the Soviet advisors could rely on their loyalty, A, to the Soviet Union, and B, to the Communist Party. So even with the most senior figures of the Romanian Securitate, when you look at the verification, it's carried out by verifiers from the Soviet Communist Party who were connected to the NKVD. No Romanian scholar that I'm aware of has written about this. But the documents are there. Yeah. Um, Can we actually take okay, one? Sure, yeah. Bryce, go on. Yeah. Uh, thanks for coming to speak to yeah. us. This has been really eye-opening for someone like myself who kind of felt that it was more a coup than a revolution. And I wanted to ask you about the uh, the minor riots or the affair with the miners that happened, I believe, in June. Of yes, 1990. Yes. Yeah. Um, the uh, miners certainly were um, a group who've been <clears throat> very exploited under the communist regime. In 1977, there have been this miners large miners' protest in the Jiu Valley, which is the mining district. Um, so they had a tradition, one might say, of uh, voicing their grievances, and Ceausescu came to address them and promised them um, improved conditions. But in fact, the leaders of the protest in 77 were moved. They were deported to other areas of Romania. There were 44 of them that were deported. And the other miners were allowed to stay on, and indeed, stay on in the Giovella. Indeed, their salaries, their wages were increased, and greater medical care, better medical care was introduced. So there was some improvement, but as I say, the leaders of the protests were sent away in 77. In 1990, um, following the, I would say, the communist tactic of using shock troops, so Iliescu brought out the shock troops just as the communists did in 1945 to bring out workers, although in the case of 1945, they were largely workers in Bucharest in the large factories that existed in Bucharest. But mobilizing the workers was a tactic the communists uh, often use. And mobilizing the workers in Bucharest would not have been very helpful in June 1990 because they had come out against Ceausescu and I suspect they were not very pleased, impressed with what had happened since 1990. So Iliescu and Petre Roman and Magoriano indeed, who was involved in the mobilization of these forces, used them, laid on trains, brought them to Bucharest, told them to beat up any opponents who were um, <clears throat> opponents who were voicing protests against the National Salvation Government. And you have to remember the major square, the university square, had been occupied. There was a big sit-in by young people in particular against the National Salvation Government uh, and especially against Iliescu, who'd been elected president uh, in May 1990. So the miners were brought in to break up the protests, sit-in protests, which were peaceful protests and the uh, miners came in and beat up uh, large numbers of young people who were occupying the square and dispersed them and the militia or the police they transformed into the police arrested uh, a large number of demonstrators and put them in jail but they were released uh, shortly afterwards because of the international outcry but certainly Romania lost 
by the summer of 1990 had lost a lot of the credit in the international arena that it had gained, if you like, from the revolution. Yes? Um, <clears throat> I'm curious if you've heard, um, I was in Bucharest, and I had been away, I have been studying it, and then I had to leave for a while um, in June of 89, and then I came back, actually when the border was officially closed, but I flew into Vienna, I came back by train from um, Budapest. So anyway, um, so I was jet-lagged and really tired. But anyway, I um, right after the 22nd, so probably in between the 22nd and when the Ceausescu's were bumped off, um, I, I had to go, I was, I wound up staying with friends just around the corner from, um, well, across from Chishmijiu. Yes. Just around the corner from yeah. Kogodichiano. I think it's been renamed. Yes. But anyway, and so right near the university. Yeah. And I heard sniper fire. I, I can't remember the reason I had to go out, but I had to go yes. out do something. Mm -hmm. And it was really weird because after a short while, I got the impression it was a recording of uh -huh. sniper fire and not the real thing. Yes. I didn't see anybody being shot. Yes. I mean, at first I was really scared, yeah, you know. Yeah. How, I mean, how, how does that fit into... I, 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 I wasn't there on the 22nd of December, right. but I, I but can... But you mentioned the stage. Yeah, stage. stage. Well, it is possibly it was stage again. Uh, I, 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 d I just don't know the answer to that. You know, was it stage, was it recorded? But I can tell you there was certainly a fire not snipers fire but fire from the army on the evening of the 22nd of December uh, because I interviewed a number of people who'd taken part in the demonstrations outside the intercontinental and indeed there's a memorial still there to the number of young people shot dead uh, shot dead on the evening of the 22nd of December and we have film of that there are people who had their um, cameras their portable uh, VCRs and so on they were recording the shooting coming from two motorized units that came up south from Bucharest and then alongside them, so alongside machine gun fire coming from the uh, APCs, so the armored personnel carriers, there was fight firing from the Securitate troops, the ones um, who were commanded by Ceausescu's brother Nikolai Andrutsen, because the Securitate Troop Academy uh, was just outside Bucharest and there were 2,000 cadets and he brought the 2,000, or not all the 2,000, but a large number of them into Bucharest on the evening of 22nd December, and they fired on young demonstrators. We, we can show that from, we've got documentary evidence, the Senatorial Senate Commission on the Revolution in Romania published a lot of material about the events of 22nd of December. Yeah, I, I guess I just... There were some mystifying elements there uh, from the very beginning. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I was at another couple's house on the 25th, and there, you know, the television was on, which was, of course, very new because yeah. it had only been two hours a night, and all yeah. of a sudden it was many hours a day. Um, and you know, stand by for you know, stand by for this big announcement. Yeah. Stand by for hours and hours, and finally, it's like this really crudely cut. Um, couple of shots of first the Ceausescu's alive and then they're dead yes. and nothing in between. It was yeah. all very bizarre. Well, that, I think um, you know, I tried to explain that from what General Stankulescu told me, that the cameraman yeah. Yeah, was, he did, he was, was waiting for the order to be given to fire, right. but there was so much uh, fear 
amongst the three paratroopers that they just opened fire immediately. The Ceausescu's were brought before that wall, and the cameraman hadn't had time to start filming. Um, and that's, as I say, I had that from an eyewitness. It seemed odd, though, that it took many hours for them to actually show this. Great I think footage. well, the discussions centered around whether it was appropriate to show an execution which was so bloody. I mean. The NSF was National Salvation One was worried that it might arise sympathy for the Ceausescu's in the uh, eyes of the viewing public. So there was a lot of discussion about whether to show the film as it was. You know, the film, as far as I know, was not edited. It, it appeared as the cameraman shot it in its truncated form because that's how he shot it. Okay, so um, I think we have time for maybe one or two more. Um, like people are trickling off to yeah. classes which are starting sooner than later. Um, uh, could we take one from Chris and then one from you and um, that will uh, let, the, let, let Dennis get on his yeah. way. <laughs> so. My question would be about the, uh, uh, the anti-Soviet section of the Securitate. Yes. And, uh, uh, and my question is, what were they engaged in? Uh, but I'll frame it this way: in the Larry Watts studies, he claims that there was a tremendous disinformation effort on the part of the Soviet Union concerning Romania's role in the Warsaw Pact, CMEA, and so forth. Was this anti-Soviet uh, uh, section of security concerned with internal affairs uh, in, in uh, Romania, or was it? trying to cover Soviet uh, disinformation uh, about Romania, but fundamentally aimed at foreign audiences? Um, well, its activity, its major activity was internally. So they were monitoring not just the activities following Soviet diplomats, but also diplomats from Yugoslavia, Hungary, the, the, uh, Yugoslavia, not member of the Warsaw Pact, but um, <clears throat> following the movements of uh, from embassies which the Romanians regarded as very close to the Soviet Union. So that was their major role. And of course, not just following the uh, movements of these diplomats, but seeing which Romanians they were coming in contact with, because their role was, of course, anti, uh, was anti, um, <clears throat> uh, not anti-terrorist, but to defend the Romanian regime. And they saw the Soviets certainly as an opponent and anyone associated with them. Uh, amongst the people they monitored, as far as we can tell, uh, people like Iliescu, who was believed, having studied in Moscow in the 50s, was a target. And there were others, friends of Iliescu, who were uh, deemed to be sympathetic to Gorbachev and Gorbachev's moves. Um, the uh, uh, disinformation, yeah, the Soviets, yes, they did practice some disinformation, but I, I would say that when you're looking at Larry Watts's books, you have to bear in mind that the information he provides is very selective. So it suits a certain agenda. Uh, and that, is, that agenda is the agenda of figures who were in the military institute under Ceausescu and who later assumed positions of influence in the Iliescu government or the, in the, under the Iliescu presidency. So he is, as I say, I repeat, very selective in the evidence that he produces in his books. And we had one more from the back. Um, my question was regarding Ceausescu's uh, trial and death. Why was it such a rushed process, and why was his 
execution so immediate um, after the trial? You said it was a bit of a show trial. Yeah, Did it was. Did the general give you any context on that? Yeah, the, um, well, the, ma the people who, I think the two people who pressed hard, because I've interviewed them and this is what they've told me, and it's confirmed by other participants in the Ministry of Defense. So, Jelu Wojkolescu Wojkan and Silvio Brukan both told me that they pressed for, uh, for Ceausescu's execution immediately because they were worried about the activity of the Securitate and the attempt to restore Ceausescu to power. And so, when uh, Iliescu was more, he was worried about having, he preferred a trial, as far as Iliescu told me this, he would have preferred to have a trial and not the speedy execution. Uh, but um, when we look at the way in which the trial was organized, so Stankalescu was given an order by this committee of four people, so it's Militaru, Voikolescu, Voikan, Brukan, and uh, Iliescu. Uh, they ordered Stankalescu, being the army commander uh, <clears throat> who, with whom they had the closest contact at the time, he uh, was to organize the execution in Turgovish day. So he ordered parachutists from a base in Boten, uh, seven of them. He took a helicopter, two helicopters, so he was in a helicopter and they landed in Boten. The second helicopter came with the judges and the other figures, Mogurianu, who was in the commission, the prosecutor of the defender and so on, they came in helicopter two. Um, this was all to be done ultra-secretly, so they went to Boten. They picked up the seven parachutists who were supposed to take part in the execution, landed in the barracks. The barracks commander, they didn't even tell the barracks commander, a colonel, why, what they were going to do, because they had this order to carry out a rapid trial and then shoot the Ceausescu's. So they didn't uh, tell Colonel Kemenech, was his name, uh, what they were going to do. And after the trial, Kemenech was taken by surprise because he thought that Stankalescu and the two helicopters had come to take the figures involved in the trial, the court, and the two Ceausescu's back to Bucharest. But Stankalescu said, no, no, he's going to be executed. And in fact, Kamenich couldn't intervene. Two of the, or four of the parachutists bound the hands of the two Ceausescu's, so they bound them together. And then the execution squad was formed of the three parachutists. And before the captain in charge of, so he was one, there was two warrant officers and, uh, cap and the captain who were part of the execution squad. And Stankulescu, being a general, was to give the order to fire. Uh, but before he could do that, the three parachutists just emptied their magazines. And as I say, that explained why the cameraman, who wasn't ready, suddenly started filming. Uh, but they were worried, Brukan and Wojkolescu, Wojkan, were particularly worried about a counter-coup, attempts to restore by the Securitate. And again, up until the 25th of December, there was a lot of sniping going on in Bucharest. And inter interestingly enough, after the Ceausescu's execution, that level of violence and sniping dropped considerably. 
Okay, uh, so I think we'll close up with that. I just want to, again, um, remind you about the upcoming Romanian Film Festival. That's this weekend. Is that correct? No, November no. 15th. 15th, 17th. November 15th and 17th? November, yeah. Um, here in Seattle. And um, we have an upcoming series of events on 1989, um, looking at other countries in the region. And you can find information both about the film festival and about those events um, at our website, which is jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. And uh, with that, let's thank uh, Dennis Dillenton for coming to the Super Center.